Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. Thank God for the Word. Thank God for the blood. Thank God the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Amen? Hope you have your Bible this morning. Let me encourage you to find the book of Acts, chapter number 19. The book of Acts, chapter number 19. My name is Shane. If you're our guest, I bring my formal welcome to you. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's a joy to be able to be in the pulpit with you uh, today. And I'm grateful that you're here. Thank you so much for watching online. What a joy it is to have you listening, whether you be in your car, whether you be at work, or you're at home today. Welcome. We're delighted you're with us. If you're able to get a Bible, I'd get one. Uh, We are going to be looking at one of the most unusual passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. This is a strange text. As a matter of fact, I've titled the sermon today, Unusual Miracles. Unusual Miracles. Uh, Many uh, have stopped me today and talked about one of the many miracles that God uh, does, and that is the birth of a child. The birth of a child is a miracle. It is absolutely amazing how God designed the body, and the body is designed in such a way to produce a baby over a period of weeks between a man and a woman. And guess what? You can't can't change that, folks. I mean, in order to have a baby, you got to have a a man and a woman. I mean, you got to have an egg and you got to have a seed. I mean, that's the only way that thing happens. And God designed it that way. And many of you know, just here in a couple of weeks, like the end of of October, 1st of November, I'm going to be a grandfather. Can I get a witness from all the grandparents here today? Is it not the greatest thing? Man, I cannot wait. I'm looking forward to that. And many of you have asked me about uh, my daughter who's going to give birth and and uh, I'm just excited about that. She's due the end of October, 1st of November, and Miriam and I both are just tickled. But it reminded me, David, of a story. It reminded me of a story because my wife's sister just had twins. And uh, I heard a story about these four fellas that were about to have, their wives were about to have babies, and they all went into labor at the same time. And the hospital was full. And so these four guys, instead of being there with their wives, uh, they were sitting in a lobby together waiting on the nurse to come out to tell them about what's going on with their babies. The first lady came out and said, Hey, guess what, sir? Your wife just had twins. To which he shook his head and said, Man, that is the most unusual thing because I work for the Minnesota Twins. And they all laughed and chuckled and just rejoiced. And about that time, a second nurse came out, looked at the second guy. He said, sir, congratulations. I got some incredible news for you. Your wife just had triplets. To which he shook his head and said, this is weird. said, you're not going to believe this. But he looked at the first guy and said, I work for the company 3M. I can't believe I just had triplets. And about that time, the third nurse came out. And she came out. She opened the door and looked at the third guy and said, Sir, i, I, I got to congratulate you. Your wife just gave birth uh, to quadruplets. You're gonna, you've got four babies. To which the man shook his head and said, Oh, my goodness, I cannot believe this. You work for 3M. You work for the Minnesota Twins. I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. And about that time, the fourth man got up, walked over to the wall, and just started banging his head against the wall just as hard as he could. The three men looked at him and said, what's wrong, sir? He said, y'all don't understand. I work for 7-Up. <laughs> the birth of a baby is an amazing thing. God has a way of doing amazing miracles. And when you think about the miracles of God and you think about how God produces a miracle, a miracle is an amazing. I've watched God. I've seen God do amazing miracles. And the most amazing miracle that God performs is taking a lost man, woman, boy, girl, on their way to hell and change their life completely through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest miracle on the planet today. And when you read the Word of God, you see in this particular passage of Scripture these 
unusual miracles that God had given to Paul, and it says it in the text. And a lot of times we want to try to replicate in our culture today, especially in the religious realm, to replicate these unusual miracles when they were never to be replicated at all. They were to be notified and signified and authorized by God to show a Gentile and Jewish world that Jesus Christ is Lord, and until the preaching of the Word of God comes with the completed Word of God, these unusual miracles had to take place to capture people's attention. Now what captures people's attention is the Word of the living God. And so I want you to notice in this text, beginning in verse number 8, all the way down to verse number 20, the unusual miracles of God. The Bible says in verse number 8, and he, that's Paul, went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and pursuing and con- or persuading and uh, con- persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, they spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrrhenius. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did this, or who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, And Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, that seven men, mind you, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Verse 17. Probably verse 17, in my opinion, is the most humiliating verse in the entire scriptures. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them. And it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver, so that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let me call your attention to verse number 20, because this is the overarching theme of this entire passage of Scripture. This passage of Scripture was given to us today so that we would recognize that in the first century church, before the completed word of God was ever handed out, before we had the written text, God used unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that the word of God or the word of the Lord, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it would grow mightily and prevail like no one else has ever seen before. And by the way, let me say this. What one message has been generated from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to, the, to today that is making its way throughout the course of the entire world. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is growing. It is prevailing. It is absolutely miraculous as to what God is doing with the word of the Lord. And so this morning when you see this passage of scripture, it's so vitally important that we not only understand the context by which it was written, but what this means concerning us in this uh, 2021 that we're living in today. Remember where Paul is. Paul is in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is gripped in superstition. 
Uh, let me give it to you like this. Remember Corinth, and we said Corinth was like the city of Las Vegas today. If we were to take the same pattern, we would say Ephesus is like the city of San Francisco today. Gripped in superstition. Uh, gripped, if you would, uh, in these uh, teachings that everything is okay, I'm okay, you're okay. Hedonism is the way to go. And when you think about San Francisco, you cannot help but think about the Golden Gate Bridge that is there. And just like people will get on an airplane and travel and fly all the way to California and go into San Francisco so that they could see the Golden Gate Bridge, so too today, uh, we are, excuse me, so too in the first century, individuals would come to Ephesus so that they could see, if you would, the Temple of uh, Artemis. And they wanted to see the Temple of Artemis and they wanted to be a part of that, which means they had to be a part of lasciviousness, they had to be a part of illicit sex, they had to be a part of superstition, they had to be a part of all of these dem demonic presence that had gripped Ephesus in such a way uh, that they wanted more and more and more hedonism. Then all of a sudden, Paul shows up on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops and he goes into the temple and teaches, and the folks say in the temple, Please stay with us. Paul had made a commitment to God, and in order to feel that, fulfill that commitment, he had to go all the way to Jerusalem. He told them this. He told the church at Ephesus, or excuse me, the synagogue at Ephesus at the time. He said, look, if God wills, I'll come back to you. But I've got to fulfill this commitment I made to God. And so he got on his ship. He went over to Jerusalem, fulfilled that commitment. He came, he left the church, traveled on his now third missionary journey, encouraged all the churches, and went straight back to Ephesus and began to teach. And according to the word of God, he was there for three months. And as he was there for three months, we see God doing amazing thing, things because God loves lost people. God wants to transfigure uh, trans, uh, uh, or he wants to transform a lost culture. And so they were so hungry for something new. They were so hungry for something uh, better. And in their drunken debauchery, we find that Jesus shows up on the scene and the truth of the Lord Jesus is spoken out. And it's spoken out in such a way that it is going to revolutionize Ephesus. A church will be planted and people will be coming to know Christ every single day. I want you to remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, it was Paul that said this. As he is in Ephesus, remember Paul is in Ephesus when he wrote the, the, the two letters to Corinth. And as he's there, he's writing this letter. And listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That is, they're not worldly. They're not ordinary in the human plans or programs. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul was experiencing 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, right there as he was writing this. He, he knew very well that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly. That the weapons of our warfare are against the devil and the demons of hell. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he remember, he told them this, he said, Remember, church, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Those words underscore just exactly what was going on in Ephesus at this period of time. So there was this great demonic oppression that was settled over the city of, of Ephesus. And the only thing that could rip through the fabric of their torment was Jesus Christ. The only thing that will change our city, the only thing that will change our, our county, the only thing that will change our state, our nation, our world 
is the power of Jesus Christ. But we must recognize that our, the weapons of our warfare are not flesh and blood. It's not Democrat or Republican. It is spiritual. We are in a spiritual battle today. And until we recognize the spiritual battle and know that the power that we have dwells inside of us and we find that we're stronger on our knees than we are any other place, God will never move in our culture. Because we have fallen for the trick of the Ephesians. And what Paul writes to them in, in Ephesians chapter number 6, he tells us still today, do not forget the weapons of our warfare are not flesh and blood. But it's principalities and power. The weapons that we have is prayer. And the weapons that we have is the witness of Jesus Christ. And we find in regards to this war that we're in, Jesus needs soldiers. And that's you and I. So we find here in the text that there's some major strongholds in Ephesus. And when you look at this text, it is very obvious that Paul has got some things that he's wanting to communicate to them and some things he needs to communicate to us. So when you look at this text, it can be broken down into three parts. Let me give them to you very quickly today, and uh, then we'll go to Bible study. Number one, the first thing I want you to see is in verses 8 through 10. If you are by any way are keeping up and you've got your pen, pencil, lipstick, or mascara, uh, you notice that we break down these passages of Scripture in what's called... Uh, in uh, uh, scholarly realms, parochopies. I don't know why they don't just say paragraphs. But they're paragraphs. And so it can be divided, if you would, into three simple little paragraphs. The first paragraph is found in verses 8 through 10. And what we see in verses 8 through 10 is what I have identified as committed consistency. Committed consistency. You see, when you see Paul, you cannot help but recognize the consistency of his witness is something that he's committed to. He is not going to be detoured by anything when it comes to his consistency. And the consistency that Paul has is surrounded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has had an encounter with Jesus and it has changed his life forever. He's been so radically changed that he has left the teaching of his childhood. I'm talking about years and years and years of Jewish tradition. He's left all of that and said, now I'm going to follow Jesus. What was the deciding factor in his life? The deciding factor is the Holy Spirit of God literally knocked him off his horse and he got radically saved. And since his salvation, he has been consistent in the commitment that he has to Jesus Christ. Which means when you look at Paul, you really will see three things. Number one, the first thing you'll see is in verse 8, you'll see a dedicated boldness. A dedicated boldness. Look at verse number 8 again. The Bible says, And he went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months. And then the Bible tells us that he was reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. When you look at this passage of scripture, it's important to understand that this word boldly means to not be wavered. He stayed true and consistent regarding the testimony of his faith. He was not ashamed of it, and he was not going to be silenced on what God did for him. And so in this dedicated boldness that he had, he wanted to do everything in his power to communicate tr truth. Now remember, in the first century church, when they had the synagogue, there was this back and forth, this kind of talking back and forth regarding what was going on in the culture and with the individual that was speaking. And so Paul had this ability, if you would, and he did it consistently inside the synagogue for three months, reasoning, that word reasoning there means arguing. He argued the point that Jesus Christ really is the Messiah, that he really was crucified, which was legitimate. They could look back and see very simply that he was. 
But on the third day that he rose again. He did this and he did it with such eloquence and he did it with such authority and he did it with such power and he did it with such boldness that he persuaded individuals. There's the term persuaded. He persuaded individuals concerning the kingdom of God. Now remember the kingdom of God is Paul's aspect concerning the gospel message. Uh, It was concerning both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is no stranger to talking about the kingdom of God. And he wants everyone to understand that in order for you to take residence in the kingdom of God, you've got to come through Jesus Christ. And so it's not unusual, like for example, uh, in Acts chapter 28, verse 31, the very last verse of the book of Acts ends talking about the kingdom of God challenging, if you would, when you personally apply it to your life, to preach and teach the kingdom of God, and that only comes through a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Paul was determined to get the gospel out. And that determination was fueled by the Holy Spirit inside of him and the dedication that he had to Jesus. Here's my question to you, dear friend. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the difficulty that we're facing, in the midst of what looks like the pandemic through the leadership that we have in our nation is trying to divide us, is trying to separate us, is trying to make us non-faced people, if you would, to wear a mask and all of these different things. Listen to me very carefully. Don't turn me off yet. The goal is to separate us where we're so individualistic that we never even communicate with one another because we don't know the reception that we're going to get. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, let me challenge you with this. As a Christian, be determined and be dedicated to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to let the boldness that is inside of you to be dedicated to preaching and teaching the truth And don't be scared of a man. It is our responsibility to get the gospel out. And so we see that Paul uh, was so dedicated to this that the Bible tells us he did it for for three hours. Now what's unusual is this. Uh, There's uh, an, an ancient text that's not inspired. It's more history than it is anything. And listen to what the writer said here. The writer said that uh, Paul held his meetings in the synagogue for approximately 11, uh, from 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. This was the time most people rested from work, including Paul, who worked to support himself according to Acts chapter 20, verses 34 and 35. So what we're seeing here is that Paul worked as a tent maker, full-time job, But on his break, when he got off of work, he would go over to the synagogue and he would preach the gospel and he did it for three months until they finally had enough and they ran him off. Which brings me to my second point. When you look at Paul, not only do you see dedicated boldness, you also see determined discipleship. Determined discipleship. Notice what he says in verse number 9. It says, but when some of them But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, that is, Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, they spoke evil of that before the multitude. Paul departed from them, and he took all the disciples with him. And they went right across the street to the school of Tyrenius. Now, who was Tyrenius? Tyrenius is a Gentile, and you always named your place of business after your personality of somewhat. So when you look at Tyrrhenius, it is where we get our English word tyrant. So here's a Gentile tyrant who had the school of uh, of a tyrant. And during the off times when nobody was meeting in the school, Paul was in there preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did not care if this guy was a tyrant or not. He was going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was determined to make disciples and to, to give people an opportunity to follow after the way. All right, I think about this. I heard a story this week about one of our own students. Man, I was so proud of her, so proud of one of our students. I was at a volleyball game this week, and uh, one, of the, one of the volleyball players' mothers was sitting behind me, members of the church. 
And she, she put, put, tapped me on the shoulder. She said, look down there. And I, I looked down, and there they were, the volleyball team praying, getting ready to play the match. And she said, now look just up away, just away. And I looked, and I saw two students not participating. She said, those two students at the beginning of the season pitched such a fit that they eliminated prayer on that volleyball team. But the students with great boldness and determination to make disciples said, we have a right to pray just like they have a right not to pray. And pulled themselves aside and began to pray to strengthen their discipleship in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Might I say to that generation, good job. Number three, here's the third thing you see when that happens, daily progress. Verse 9 and 10, the Bible says there in the latter part, he was reasoning daily, daily in the school of Tyrrhenius, and this continued for two more years. So two more years in the school of Tyrrhenius, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Here's the, here's the challenge we have today. Our church has been sitting here for a hundred plus years. A hundred plus years. But there's still people in the shadow of our steeple that don't know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. Dave and I went visiting one time and we knocked on the door, met an individual, never heard Jesus, not even a mile away from our church. May the Lord give us such boldness that we see this daily progress even in our own culture. Number two, here's the second thing I've got to give you. My time's running out. I'm telling you, it goes by so fast. Not only do you see committed consistency, but you also see cursed competition. Cursed competition. In verses 11 through 16, all of a sudden what shows up on the scene is in the, in the city of Ephesus, uh, they have these exorcist shops. These Wiccan shops. Uh, if you're watching there up north, you have made comments, the, those individuals that are watching up north, that there's these uh, magician-type Wiccan uh, places. They were in the scriptures too in the first century. There, there was one called Skiva, 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 and Skiva, Exorcist Extraordinaire, the seven sons of Skiva. And, and what you could do is you could go in there and say, hey, look, my neighbor or, or, my, or my friend or my family member, they got a demon. Will you come exercise it? And they would say, sure, that'll cost you so much money. And you pay them the money, they come and exercise the demon. What's fascinating to me is that when Paul showed up on the scene, and as Paul's working, remember Paul has got a handkerchief. Praise God for handkerchiefs. And he's working, he's a tent maker, and it, that doesn't mean he's just doing tents. It's more of a, a leatherwork type ministry, a leatherwork type job. So he's working on tents, he's working on leather, he's hot and sweaty. Aquila and Priscilla are in business with him. Paul's wiping the sweat. He's got this apron on that he's wearing with his tools in it. It's getting all hot and sweaty. At the end of the day, or he puts a, his handkerchief down or takes his apron off and hangs it up. And, and some guy uh, comes alongside and sees it. He ain't looking and they steal. They take his handkerchief and they go give it to their uh, family member that's got a demon or that's paralyzed. And God does a miracle and they get healed. And these seven sons of Sceva go, huh, that dude's hurting our business. Let's adopt what he's doing. And so this cursed competition shows up on the scene. And did you notice what they said? Uh, they said this. They, they said here in this passage of Scripture that they're itinerant Jewish exorcists. The word itinerant means vagabond. It means traveling. So uh, they're only in town for a season. And they travel from town to town. So they're known in all of this region in Ephesus, the seven sons of Sceva. They probably got billboards up with all seven of them going... And then all of a sudden, they have this staff meeting and they say, hey, I got this idea. Let's adopt Paul's Jesus because that seems to be the determining factor. And so they get this, or they say, well, there's this guy over here that's got all these demons in him. Let's go try it out on him. So they leave their office and they go to this man's house they approach this demon and the demon says, or, or they, they say to the demon, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And we all know the story. The demon looks at them in bewilderment. 
and simply says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And when you look at this passage of Scripture, you can't help but see two things in the text. The first thing you see in verse 11 and 12 is authentic signs. Authentic signs. That is to say, Luke puts the emphasis on God doing miraculous things through Paul. That's to say that Paul clearly understood his calling. His calling was not to draw attention to himself. His calling was not to make money through handing out or selling his sweat rags or his dirty aprons. His calling was to draw people to Jesus Christ. He clearly understood his calling and never took advantage of the situation. You better watch out for these individuals that are on TV that want to make money by telling you that if you'll just give them some money, they'll send you a bottle of tears that they cried in or a handkerchief that they wiped their brow with. When you look at Paul, it was nothing about receiving money for himself. It was about people getting saved. And so in Paul's life, when you look at verse number 15, you can't ignore the fact that this looks all so familiar. When this demon says, Jesus, I know, he's referring to James chapter 2, verse 19, when James testified to the fact that, listen, if you believe in God, you do well, because the demons believe in God, and they tremble. Which, which means when you look at passages of Scripture and you see demons in the Scripture, and by the way, you see demons in the Scripture. And if they existed in the first century, bless God, I'm here to tell you, they exist in this century. And they want to come against you, and while they can never, watch this, they can never possess a Christian. They can't oppress you. They could put a spirit of oppression over you that you feel like you're not safe. You feel like God don't care. And you feel like the church don't care. But I'm here to tell you, there is an authentic sign that we know Jesus Christ. And that is this. The demons know you. What do you mean? Look at what the Bible says. Jesus I know. And Paul I know. Who are you? You see, these seven sons of Sceva, they didn't know Jesus. They knew Paul. They heard about the Jesus Paul was preaching, but they didn't know Jesus. In fact, they probably didn't even know Paul. So, which brings me to the conclusion, somewhere in the halls of hell, there are these pictures that are hanging on the wall. The most wanted for oppression and on that wall, they see Jesus at the very front. And the disciples of Jesus Christ, those that have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, what I'm asking you today is this. Do the demons know you? This demon said, Jesus I know, and trembled. So is that consistent with Scripture? It really is. If, if you go to Luke chapter 8, verse 28, you find yourself at a point where Jesus is going over to the Gadarian maniac. You remember that? You remember that, David? He gets over there. Y'all got to listen a whole lot faster than y'all listening. Turn over to Luke chapter number 8. Watch this. This is consistent with the Scripture. The Bible says in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is going over to Gadarene. And the Bible says in Luke chapter number 8, verse number 26. The Bible says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And when he stepped out of the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes. Nor did he live in a house, but he lived in the tombs. He lived there. In verse 28, the Bible says, And when he saw Jesus, now watch this, anytime you see a demon, when they see Jesus, when they talk about Jesus, they don't have a problem believing if Jesus is the Messiah. Humanity is the only one that's got a problem with this. The spiritual realm has zero problem with this. They know exactly who Jesus is. Look at what it's, the Scripture says. The Bible says that he cried out, 
And he fell down before him. And with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Well, it sounds a whole lot like trembling to me. You see, the demons know Jesus. And the demons know Jesus' followers. So the demons know Jesus and the demons know Paul, but they don't know who the seven sons of Sceva are. And by the way, you don't really care. And the Bible says, verse 16, uh, what we find here in the text is not only authentic signs, but we also see artificial faith. Here are these itinerant, these vagabond Jews who travel here and there in these different seasons. And verse number 16 says that when the man whom the evil spirit leaped on overpowered him, prevailed against him, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The seven sons of Sceva were beaten so bad, they're bleeding, they're bruised, they have not a stitch of clothing on. And can you imagine the individuals standing out in the street going... What has just happened? Those were, the, those were the seven sons of Sceva. That was Sceva, 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 and Sceva Incorporated, and they all were running. Here's two, two points, and I close, and I'm going to give you this last one, and we'll be done. Uh, two, point number one is this demons know Christ, and they know the true followers of Christ. The question is do they know you? Number two, demons will gang up on non-believers. So I want you to listen to me very carefully, dear friend. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you don't know Him as Messiah, it's not oppression that's your problem. It could be possession. And the demons that are inside of you are ganging up on you. And what you need more than anything is you need to come to Jesus Christ. You don't hear a lot of preachers preach on this text. But I'm telling you what, until we get to the place where we recognize that the spiritual problem is greater than the physical ailments that we have, we, listen, I'm not saying we don't need to deal with it. We need to deal with the physical problems. But what I'm saying is we need to start dealing with the spiritual problems first. We're the only country that medicates instead of first dealing with the spiritual issues that exist in an individual's life. That's hard because culturally we were raised that way. But when you're raised that way culturally, you only see through those lens. I'd love to get you on an airplane and take you to somewhere like the Dominican Republic where you walk into a cane, a cane field, a sugar cane field where upon the very entrance of that sugarcane field where everybody has to walk to work, there on the side of the road as entrance into the sugarcane field sits a witch doctor. And that witch doctor casting spells and uh, calling on demons and calling on all this magical things. And here we are in the United States thinking, hey, if I read my horoscope, I might get something good today. It's all the same thing, brothers. Listen to me, sisters. Listen to me, friends. I'm not, I'm not here to be ugly or mean. I'm not here to get on a high horse. Bless God, that's not, my, that's not my journey. That's not my calling. My calling as God is my witness is to pastor the wonderful people of Maysville Baptist Church. And at this season to help lead us through this pandemic. But I'm here to tell you. The devil wants to do everything in his power to distract you, to discourage you, and to tear and to rip us apart. And until we recognize that this battle is not against person to person, but it's against the spirit world. Paul is giving us a beautiful illustration of what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene. The Bible tells us here, not only do you see cursed competition in verse 11 through 16, now you also see the committed consistency of Paul in verses 8 through 10, but I must point out verses 17 through 20, and that is Christ-centered conviction. Christ-centered conviction. Did you see what happened here? The Bible says in verse number 17, this became known both to all. You know what all means? All means all. That means the entire region. The entire city, the entire region knew that the sons of Sceva were being beaten to a bloody pulp 
because they tried to preach a false gospel to somebody they didn't know. And when they heard it, it magnified not the sons of Sceva, not the demons. It magnified the name of Jesus. So much so, verse 17 says, that all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, fear fell on them all. And the name of Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus, was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing their deeds. Also many who had practiced magic brought all their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value and it's like uh, 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Jesus' name was magnified through the committed consistency of Paul, not the artificial faith of the demons. And so when we see that the sons of Sceva here who were so well known, fall. When people looked at that, this is what they said. This can only be the finger of God. Only God can do this. And we are steeped in this religiosity. And so what happened to the individuals, notice what happened to the individuals in the text. The first thing is verse number 17 is the term fear. I would underline that. Why? Because it gives us an example as to how we need to respond regarding what's going on in our culture spiritually. The Bible says that they fear fell on them all. The word fear is, um, it's a Greek word, uh, phobo, phobo. Like where we get our English term phobia. Like arachnophobia. Bless God, if you don't got arachnophobia today, you're probably lost. I'm so sick of walking through spider webs. Arachnophobia is the fear of spiders. How many? Are you ready for the Jojo, Joho, whatever they're called? I'm ready for them to die. Can I get a witness right there? Woo! I, my son-in-law, bless her, I love with all my heart to see him when he walks out. He, he, he's going to his car. Right now it's still dark. He opens the door doing this. Thought he was praising the Lord. No, he's just getting rid of spider webs. <laughs> to truth, man. I'm just, uh, they're, they're, they're not aggressive, so I'm not afraid of them, you know, uh, jumping on me. But when I'm cutting the grass, you know, I'm just running through them. <laughs> running through them. And so it looked like I've got a, a white wig. I look, bless God, I look like Benny Hinn uh, when I'm cutting the grass. I mean, just all over the place. I, I cut this, this past week, I cut, or last week when I was cutting, uh, I didn't time it just right. And usually when I time it, they're all the way up in the trees by the time I hit them. Well, bless God, this one kind of fell, and, and, I, and I looked, and it was on there. You, you talk about somebody, if you ever wanted to see what the pastor would look like if he was Pentecostal, that was the day you should have been. But, whoa, glory to God! It was something else. Phobia. But watch this, watch this now. With this phobia comes respect. If you don't have a healthy fear, and that's what this term means, a healthy fear, a reverence, a reverential fear. I told you, I don't have a reverential fear for those things. Just plow through. But when it comes to God, there's this reverential fear. And he says this here in the text here. We find it here. He says that this reverential fear fell upon everybody there, the Jews and the Greeks. And this reverential fear caused something else to happen. Watch how this builds. Number two, the second thing is, the Bible says that they magnified the name of the Lord Jesus. You see that there? Again, verse 17. The word magnifies in the imperfect tense. It's indicating that the name of Jesus was being spoken forth with a sense of awe and reverential fear again and again and again and again and again. People were saying, did you hear what Jesus did? Did you hear what Jesus did? That demon testified he knows Jesus. Jesus is greater than the demons. Jesus' name is being magnified over and over and over again to the point, verse 18, look at what happens. And many who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, watch this, started confessing and telling their deeds. That word confessing is where we get our English word repentance is a present tense verb. means that they were continually, repeatedly repenting of 
what was going on in their life. What you, so what are you saying? Uh, they were going home and seeing these idols and they would say, oh, that's a sin. I repent of that. And they would tell people so much so that this repentance moved them from a position, from a position of confessing to a position of forsaking. What do you mean? Look, look at what the Bible says, verse number 19. They're confessing, verse 19. Also, many of those who had practiced magic, that's where we get our English word horoscopes, brought their books, and they brought them together, and they burned them. I would underline that word burned them. Why? Because what is it telling us here in the text? It's not telling us that there's monetary value. It's, that's there in the text for an illustration. What it's telling us is they forsook what they repented of. Here's where our problem is today. Our problem today is we confess and we repent, but we don't forsake. Well, what is forsaking? Forsaking means to be to completely give it up and to destroy it. It's that burn the ships illustration. You know, where they come over on the mainland and they, uh, the Spaniards, and they overtake this mainland and they look up and the ships are being burned because they ain't going back home. That's forsaking. So you got a lost man. He comes to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and Lord. He's been consumed with the demon of alcoholism. And God invades that space and indwells with the Holy Spirit of God. He confesses his sin to God. And God saves that man and places the Holy Spirit inside of him to the point where not only he confesses alcoholism as a sin, but he forsakes it. He goes to the kitchen. He opens the refrigerator, gets all the beer, pours it down the drain and says, I'm done with this. He forsakes it. We don't do a lot of forsaking today. We do a lot of confessing. They said, these people, y'all come on, come in, come in the living room. Let's sit down for a minute. Scott, they say this. I got to pull my socks up. That's why I sat down. They say it. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. Let's go ahead and pull this up while I'm down here. I love Jesus, but I drink a little. I know it's wrong, but that's just my personality. You may have confessed your sins, but here's the question. Have you forsaken your sin? Paul tells us here in this, or Luke, Luke tells us in the text that Paul had, had such a testimony in his neighborhood that through him and Priscilla and Aquila, the disciples, those 12 men that got saved, that are there. Everything that's happening in Ephesus is happening through the individuals that confess their sin and forsook their sin to follow after Jesus. Now, does that mean Paul and the disciples were perfect? No, of course not. Did they mess up? Yes. Paul's going to, he, look, I told you, Paul's going to, here in just a little while, next chapter, Paul's going to do another. He's going to tell these folks to take another commitment in regards to the, the, the Nazarite uh, commitment. They're going to do it again. It's not, he's, it's not going to be until he writes the book of Romans that he's going to figure out that Jesus really is everything that we need. He's going to mess up. He's a human. But when he messes up, he's going to confess. Why? Because what he forsook, he cannot live with anymore. And see, so here's a problem with us. We confess, but we never forsake, so we don't have a problem living with the sin that we're playing with. So I want to ask you a question. Here we are in this pandemic. God's called us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost and dying world. The Bible clearly states that he did these unusual miracles with Paul, which means we're not going to see these unusual miracles. I mean, look, 
I mean, where's it at? Where, where, there it is. You want this today? You can have it. It ain't going to do nothing for you. Nothing for you. I don't have an apron, but I got a coat. Take it with you. It ain't going to heal you. Ain't going to do it. Why? Because the Bible says that he did these unique miracles through Paul. Not through Shane. Not through, it's, it's specific to the first century church. But here's what God has done. He's put inside of you, if you're a born-again child of God, He's put inside you the Holy Spirit of God. And through that Holy Spirit, He's given you everything that you need to see God do a greater miracle than these unusual miracles. And that's the miracle of sharing the gospel and somebody receiving Christ as Savior. Could I ask you this in, in closing? We started this morning by talking about birth. Twins, triplets, quadruplets. I can't wait to be a grandfather. What a great day the birth of my grandchild's gonna be. It's gonna be my grandchild's gonna be her birthday, her physical birthday. But you know what's gonna happen one day down the road? I'm going to be praying and helping that baby understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one day, there'll be another birth. A spiritual birth. Where the sin of this world will be released off of that child and that child will be born again. A miracle that's greater than you see in the Bible. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been born again like that? Have you ever been born a second time? I want to give you that opportunity today. Could you join me in prayer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed? My time is gone. Way past gone. I should have been done 10 minutes ago. You say, you say that every week. I know. I'm bad. Bad. But what I really, really, really care about is your relationship with Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never been born again, if you're here today and you're listening and you never received Christ as Savior, would you let that miracle happen in your life today? Would you say something like this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. And this morning I ask you to save me. I repent of my sins. And I'm forsaking that sin. I'm burning it. I never want to pick it up again. I'm forsaking that. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia. 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.